Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is on a mission to share conversations with researchers, practitioners, authors, and accidental behavioral scientists to help us understand why we do what we do. And we'd like to think that you're going to hear those conversations on behavioral grooves in ways that you won't hear them anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And not only do Kurt and I feel like we're in a masterclass every time we hit the record button with one of our guests, but we also love sharing these conversations with you. Yes, we do. When we started Behavioral Grooves in the fall of 2017, we had no idea that we'd have listeners in more than 120 countries or we would be record and publish more than 160 episodes. Isn't that the truth? It's really rewarding to see that we've been able to share great, insightful conversation with lots of people, and it just makes me happy to think about it. I'm glad we're going to share this episode with listeners too, but before we do, We just want to remind you that podcast search engines offer suggestions based on the number and quality of reviews that a podcast has. So by leaving us a good review, you'll be helping other people learn about behavioral grooves. So thank you for leaving us a review today. Okay, so in this episode, we spoke with Elspeth Kirkman, a longtime researcher and leader in the infamous Behavioral Insights team in London. Her passion for behavioral science is matched really only by her dedication to public policy and to the future of education. For the sake of context, listeners should know that we rescheduled with Elspeth four or five times, each time because of some last minute interruption for one of us. And on the day when we finally thought we had everything worked out, it was one of those damn computers and internet technologies that conspired against us. We had an hour blocked out for our call with her, but ended up only having 30 minutes of recording time. It was really challenging, and we are so, so grateful that she was such a good sport all along the way. And that is the point of the story. Like once we got past the scheduling and technical challenges to record the session with Elspeth, she was generous and thoughtful and offered some terrific wisdom that rings through in our conversation. And we are so excited to share it with you today. Elspeth shared thoughts about her favorite decision models, the advice she might give her 16-year-old self, and some ideas on what the future of behavioral science might look like as we dive deeper into research and do a better job of mainstreaming the field. So it's a short but terrific conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. If you like our podcast, please leave us a review on the listening app of your choice. We'd love to hear from you and what you think about behavioral grooves. So sit back and enjoy a great cocktail of 16-year-old self-thinking and listen to our conversation with Elspeth. Elspeth Kirkman, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you very much for having me. So we're going to get started with a quick speed round. I want to find out whether or whether you're a coffee drinker or a tea drinker. Decaf coffee. <laughs> Decaf coffee. Good. All right. Yeah. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite musician, actor, or sports figure? Musician. The sports figure would not eat the things I would like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, would you rather be expert in a new language? Or would you rather master a new instrument? Language. All right. Which might be more effective at attracting bike share riders using the term free or $12 off? What, what, even if the $12 off meant it was free, which is going to attract more? Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say free, but that's also going to, 
going to put me to the test as to whether that's truly the answer. <laughs> and we brought this up because you you wrote a, a piece on this. I know. Let's tell free riding or discounted riding. Let's let's hear a little bit about that background. Bring that up. Yeah. So um, this is a project that I did with um, the city of Portland when I was working in the U.S. And they wanted more people to ride their rather excellent bike share. And we looked at whether behavioral science could help them on that. They've got pretty great data, uh, which is always a, always a big treat. And they were sending out a, um, this is a really nice story, actually. We've done a bunch of work with the city and um, loads of people that I worked with there who were so fantastic, really enthusiastic about behavioral insights. And we'd run a couple of different trials. And one of them rang me up about, maybe three, four months after we'd finished working there and said, we're about to send out this offer to people to use our bike share um, initiative. And we were thinking we could test two different variations. Are we supposed to randomize who gets which one? And I was like, ka-ching, yes, you are. What an amazing question to receive. Because normally you get, oh, you know, we just randomly sent everyone in the North version A and everyone in the South version, version B. And you think, okay, that's not, that's not random, but let's see what we can do with it. Uh, so they, we co-designed these two different variants of the message. One was a, um, a free ride uh, frame, so basically telling you what you got for free. And the second one was a, uh, a frame that was $12 off. So, so the offer was identical in terms of numerical, uh, in terms of economic value. It was $12 off, um, $12 off uh, each time. Um, but we wanted to test which one was better. And I think the thing that I actually find most interesting about this, when I was listening to your episode with, uh, with Katie Milkman, and it was inspired a lot by her work was the uh, the difference between the reaction from people who had newly moved into a neighbourhood uh, with the bike share scheme and people who had a new bike dock built near them. So they hadn't moved. They didn't have uh, a fresh start, as we might term it. So they did have fresh infrastructure because uh, basically it was, a, it was uh, considerably more effective. I, I think from memory, it was about three or four times, four times more effective uh, for people who's just moved and have that kind of fresh start. Um, and we did find that... Um, there was no overall difference in redemption of the offer between whether it was twelve dollars off or whether it was whether it was free. Um, but people uh, people did people did prefer the free offer if they happened to live in a neighbourhood with a new bike dock in it. So one of our successful subgroups did prefer the free the free thing. It, it, what's fascinating for me is is I would have made the assumption that free would have been more effective across the board. Um, because of just the, the, the literature around, I mean, Dan Ariely talks about the difference between, you know, free and one penny, right? And, and this, this idea of free just has a different connotation in most of our brains. Uh, and so any, any insight, any hypotheses on your part as to why it, it just, obviously it worked better for those existing um, neighborhoods where it was brought in, but with people moving in, it didn't seem to have any uh, significant difference. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, you know, we went back and forth on this. Our initial hypothesis was, of course, exactly that, you know, the free thing is just going to be so much more attractive. We're going to see these big effects. And, you know, this is a 7,000 household study um so it's, it's it's not a sort of small sample problem or anything like that we had a bunch of different hypotheses one was that um the main kind of barrier might be absolutely nothing to do with how attractive the offer is so it could be that there's just so many barriers to entry for riding a bike that mm. um 
it, it really doesn't kind of come into play. And I think that's somewhat backed up by the absolute numbers behind this study. So, you know, I'm saying things like it was four times more effective uh, if you happen to have just moved to the neighbourhood. It's still really quite low take up. And one of the things that we found with this, which is obviously a kind of killer question in, in public policy is, is sure it was significant, but in terms of uh, investment, it, it didn't kind of really quite wash its own face. And it's not, you know, it's a useful, if you're going to do promotions anyway, it's a useful thing to know about who to target and potentially how to frame it. But it's not like the killer takeaway from this isn't this is what you should be doing to get people to ride bikes. And when we did a little bit more kind of, you know, just I won't call it qualitative research because it would be overstating it, but chatting to people about perceived barriers and all of those sorts of things, there's everything from kind of how confident people feel riding to how busy the roads are around there to, um, you know, what they associate biking with to the business of their day to day and all those sorts of things. So it could just be that it's not, you know, it's not really kind of uh, touching the touching the point to sort of do the, do the framing piece. Um, and then equally, you know, for the group, I think the reason, so directionally free did look better, but it gets so kind of dominated by this uh, much bigger response from these new movers that it sort of gets, uh, gets washed out because for those folks, there was no real difference in terms of their appetite for take up. And that might be, you know, anything from a fresh start effect as we're hypothesizing through to they're really uh, not very cash rich because they've just moved, uh, just moved house. Although hilariously, one of the reviewer comments that we got that I got on the paper was um, that most people have had financial assistance to move house. Uh, and I kind of thought that's really funny because most people aren't assistant professors who get paid to move, move cities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let, let's, I'd like to turn over to, um, you've been with, uh, the, we've been doing work with the BIT, the Behavioral Insights team for more than seven years, right? And um, yeah. Are there any favorite models? Do you think that there's some magic model that that you guys have have worked on, developed? Uh, you know, I mean, we're we're all fans of of East, that's for sure. But um, but what 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 comes to mind is as really having some gravity in terms of ap- applicability in the world? Yeah, I think there's a number of different models that we like to use uh, in in BIT. I think most of the magic and the sort of secret source of some of our best projects is more about people with diverse skill sets, perspectives, um, academic backgrounds, experience working together and working together really deeply with practitioners. So the the vibe is always will come with all of the sort of wonky behavioral science um, stuff and you'll tell us how it actually works on the ground and then together we'll kind of figure out um figure out what's likely to what's likely to fly and that combination tends to work best and actually you know one of the things i always say is that we have all of these sort of fancy ways of diagnosing problems and coming up with solutions and all these frameworks and often what you end up finding is your best intervention is the thing that is essentially emulating the very best practitioner in that team's practice so whatever the best person in the team tends to do is their sort of hunch of what's going to likely work best for you know, whoever they're working with, that tends to be the thing that sort of wins out. So some of the very simple things that we first started out with, like, why wouldn't I just send people a text message the day before their debt is due so that they don't get debt collectors coming around? You know, you don't need a behavioral scientist to come up with that insight. You need somebody who's spent seven years dealing with people who have debt collectors coming around and figuring out that they don't answer their, they don't open their mail and all of those sorts of things. Um, that said, you know, we do have models that we use. I'm a really big fan of uh, UCL's COMBI model as a way to diagnose problems. I just find it very clarifying as a way to both sort of in my own mind separate out what the barriers to 
uh, to, to changing a behaviour might be, but it also just tends to resonate really well with people who aren't experts in behavioural science. And, and it also helps kind of focus and park some of those big structural questions about, you know, why can't we address capitalism, for example? Um, yeah. You can sort of say, well, that's, you know, that's in a different bucket. So you're writing a book with Michael Halsworth right now, right? Or written a book, right? So uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about that. What, what, uh, Michael's one of our favorite, favorite people. So. Yeah, well, um, even after having written a book with him, he's also one of my favorite people. So it's a testament <laughs> to, uh, it's a testament to what a wonderful co-author he is. And we, we wrote it on either side of the Atlantic, um, on different time zones with very little, uh, very little time to sort of chat in person about it so it i think will remain for a very long time uh one of the biggest feats of collegiate um working that i've probably ever <laughs> experienced but um it was yeah it was really enjoyable the book is called behavioral insights um absolutely it's an mit press essential knowledge series book so that basically means that it's a sort of relatively short primer uh on the topic it sits as part of a series it was really enjoyable to write you know not least because we got to reflect on uh, a sort of decade of this stuff being mainstreamed into public policy and um you know obviously the sort of roots go much deeper than much deeper than a decade uh, but we got to kind of look back at, at things it was also quite confronting to write because you know the commission was you two are experts in this you do it all day every day can you just write it into a book and we went yeah of course we can i mean we're experts in it we do it every day and then we sat down to write it and, you know, the first sentence, you're going, behavioural insights is, no, wait, are, is, are, you think, I don't even know, you know, I don't even know if this is singular or plural, like what it, what it is slash are. So it was a very fun, um, fun way of us working out what we do and don't know and quite humbling, but ultimately, uh, ultimately very rewarding. In the process, do you think that there was something that emerged as something that you felt like is being... Uh, not paid attention to enough in government policy. Are there some aspects of behavioral science that you think could really, really be beneficial if they were, if they were implemented or applied more? Yeah, I mean, the last, the last chapter sort of looks at what do we think is coming next, or what do we think a successful version of the future for behavioral insights would look like. And one of the sort of less exciting but most critical answers that we have on that is that we should just make behavioural insights almost invisible. It should be so entrenched and uh, deeply embedded into everything that policymakers do that it kind of doesn't have its own name and its own thing. It's just part of the, you know, diagnostic and uh, design process for, for mm -hmm. delivering policy. And I think that that is starting to happen in things like government communications teams, for instance, I think there's been a real mainstreaming of some of the insights and some of the measurement methods, uh, evaluation methods. I still don't think it happens when policy is designed, and that's partly because of how policy is designed. So, you know, policymakers are decision makers and human beings in their own right with all their own quirks and, uh, and everything that comes with it. And so often, you know, things are being done at pace, they're being done with strange incentives, all of this sort of stuff. So you get classic behavioural errors in the making of policy. But I also just think we haven't stretched our imaginations enough yet about um, the limits of application. And we're still very much stuck on, well, if it's not a very small change to how you're framing information, um, then it's kind of out of scope. And actually, you know, we know that some of the most effective 
behavioural interventions and pieces of behavioural public policy are well beyond that and the, you know, the default design of programmes and those kinds of things. Right. You mentioned that writing, that part of this process, it was humbling. What was humbling? What was the, was it just understanding the breadth and, and scope of everything? Was it trying to uh, capitalize that in, or conceptualize that into something to put on pages that is, you know, understandable? What, where, what's the humble part here? I mean, I think, I don't know about, about you two, but I feel like um, my life is just a series of looking at myself five years ago and feeling deeply embarrassed about how little I knew and how much I thought I knew at the time. And, you know, that is only going to continue, I'm sure. And I felt like this was just an accelerated version of that, where instead of five years, it was, you know, the four months we wrote it in where we went from the sort of, yeah, we can, you know, we can definitely, I won't speak for Michael, but I went from, uh, of course I can write about this. It's just saying what I do all day, every day, um, to thinking, God, I know nothing. And then coming out at the end with something that I felt happy with. Um, so it was, it was, yeah, humbling as a sort of reminder of the limits of your knowledge and not the limits of knowledge uh, in its entirety and had to butt up against my own limits a lot and do loads of research. But ultimately that was, actually uh, a really quite enjoyable process and so I think when I say humbling I don't mean that as a bad thing in any way I just mean it was a good reminder of um, how much there is still to kind of learn and be inspired by and all of those kinds of things. Yeah I, I look back last week and I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed about what I thought and did last week so it doesn't take five years for me. Um. <laughs> what, what keeps you engaged? You, you love, you obviously, your passion for, for the work is tremendous. What, what keeps you engaged? I think having lockdown has been very revealing on this because I am never very good at knowing what kinds of things excite me or engage me until they're gone and then um, you notice it. So I can segue into music with a nice Jane Mitchell reference there. But um, <laughs> I, I think in-person interactions with people, particularly people that work in the area that you're trying to design an intervention for, is what um, makes me most excited. Actually, my dream, my dream week would be half the week, really kind of like down and dirty on the front line, you know, getting paper cuts, looking through the filing systems people have to use and talking to people and figuring out what the kind of real problems and how they manifest are. And then the other half of the week, just sitting in silence in a room with data, that would be the perfect week. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just actually being able to do both sides of that. Yeah. You you brought up Joni Mitchell. I just have to ask, do you like to have you, have your musical taste changed since, since you had a baby seven months ago? My algorithmic recommendations about my musical tastes have changed dramatically. So I got a um, notification from Spotify recommending uh, stuff based on my heavy rotation list, which was white noise and nursery rhymes. So clearly Spotify hasn't figured out that this is not a new genre that I've embraced um, and rather that I've, that I've had a baby. Um, and now I'm just trying to get her into my, apart from mindless nursery rhymes, I like to rock her to sleep to, um, to the Smashing Pumpkins. Um, and she seems to really like it. So uh, I get to kind of indulge my musical tastes with uh, putting it to sleep. I love, I love going to sleep to the Smashing Pumpkins. There you go. I, I could do that. Tim, on the other hand, would, would not. But uh, I use music to sleep a lot. And Smashing Pumpkins would be on that playlist. Could you, could you work yeah. while listening to Smashing Pumpkins? 
uh, no, I can't work with um, any music on at all. I actually listen sometimes to white noise in order to help me work. Tell us what you're currently working on. What What is engaging you now that the book is done? What What's What's the next thing? Yeah, what's interesting for you? Uh, I'm doing some work. Well, this is overclaiming because my colleagues are doing some work uh, that I think is incredibly interesting and I'm sort of standing by observing. Uh, but let me answer it with this anyway, which is on... You know, one of the big things that's happened since schools have closed is that EdTech, um, so platforms that allow you to do your schoolwork uh, from anywhere, has just exploded. So all these EdTech providers in the UK and I'm sure everywhere else have gone, you know, they've sort of got an eightfold increase in the number of students using them and the amount of time they're spending on it has radically increased. And so there's a really interesting opportunity to try and improve student persistence and um attainment on those platforms because there's a sort of you know much larger new captive audience and it's much more urgent that not only that they're using it but that it's working particularly for the most disadvantaged kids who are likely to be you know the last decade of closes and the attainment gap is probably going to be wiped out by this by this lockdown if we don't do something about it so there's some work that i'm uh, as i said peripherally involved in on testing different behavioral interventions on ed tech platforms try and figure out what um what works and particularly what works for um disadvantaged kids just on that what are you any any initial findings are, are you coming up with anything at this point i know it's probably too early but anything that you can share so we don't have any results yet but i think in terms of is this a rich area to look at um the answer is definitely yes so and it's kind of an interesting intersection between basic ux and you know just designing the user experience well and then looking at things through a behavioral lens so um you know there's little things on all of these platforms like um particular features that you have to opt into and turn on in order to have access to and there's uh you know looking at those and figuring out are the right ones opt in and are the right ones opt out is, is kind of interesting um yeah we don't really have a have a ton of stuff yet but um it will be interesting when when we can reveal it do you think the implications might actually flow into future generations of uh, of, of the way educational technology gets deployed? Is, is kind of that your hope? Yeah, and I think that we take this moment to imagine, you know, to be really imaginative about what is a school and what could it look like. And it's really difficult to do that in a crisis. But our entire model of schooling is based on, you know, some early 20th century model of what a classroom should be and all of those things and of course we've kind of come on and we've advanced but for example you know that that analysis about how lockdown is likely to reverse attainment gains made over the last decade in terms of the gap between disadvantaged and um, advantaged students that's what's happening every single summer when we send kids home for the summer and they don't have enough to eat and all of those sorts of you know all of those sorts of things and we know about that you know the summer melt is a well-documented phenomenon and also studied in the behavioral literature but you know we can reconsider that and just think what are we doing i mean summer holidays summer holidays are great if you're eight years old and you know you happen to have a great time in the summer or if you're 15 years old or whatever but they're kind of terrible for everybody else because uh apart from teachers so you know are there sort of other ways that we could structure the school year and that we could um you know solve a lot of our problems all in one um, and i'm sure tech will be a huge part of that and having to figure out uh, what is it about classroom delivery that you want to replicate via tech and what is it that you want to disrupt and say the only reason we do one so many pedagogy in a classroom is is because of practicality of practicalities. So why would we do that and continue that model over into a tech environment? 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Actually, that's really that's really exciting that the implications could be that far reaching because I, I'm I'm really inspired by the idea of rethinking what school looks like. Like, why not? You know, like you said, we've got kind of a medieval version of this. <laughs> why not? Why not do something new? That's that's very cool. You do a lot of work on application, right? So applying behavioral science into everyday work or policy, various different things. What, what are the key insights that you can bring on, on what, what we need to be thinking about as, as people who are behavioral scientists, but how do we apply that information in a, in a meaningful way that actually makes a difference? Yeah, I think the, the first thing is understanding the context that you're implementing things in really, really well and how that differs from the context in which those insights may have origin, originally been generated, which is very obvious, you know, if you're talking about a um, heuristic that's been kind of identified and tested in a university research environment with 21-year-old undergraduate students or something, and then you're expecting that it's going to translate into children's social care and child protection, um, you're probably not going to have a a particularly good hit rate with with things that work. Um, I think one thing that I find sort of frustrating but but interesting is that you always want to kind of go for the fancy thing where you get to test the really clean mechanism um but you normally can't in an applied environment so i think being a pragmatist um uh and you know often recognizing that there might be 15 different things that you could try but a lot of the time when you're doing applied behavioral science actually some of the barriers will be really obvious things like there's loads of friction in this process what if we just take it out um so, you know, the thing that you want to test might not always be kind of aligned to the thing that actually just needs to be tested. Another thing which I think offsets some of the disappointment around not always getting to test the thing that you think would be most academically interesting is getting really excited about the experimental environment. So the fact that you can, uh, you know, you often have these enormous samples and you've got this chance to test something in a very kind of real uh, real world setting um, and you get results quite quickly uh, is pretty phenomenal. It's a real pleasure to be able to work on those things and a big you know, responsibility when you're kind of actually testing things in the wild. And then the last thing is just nobody cares in policy about the sort of, you know, the minutiae of exactly what you did. It won't sort of survive the next six months of telling the story of what happened as a result of it. So the more we can move away from talking about things in terms of p-values or standard deviations or whatever it might be and translate it into things that policymakers care about like good example of this where you know instead of talking about standard deviations he'll talk about is the equivalent of moving a kid from the worst school in chicago to the best school in chicago that's much much more compelling and so you know we should apply a bit of the behavioral science uh, magic to ourselves and think about whether we're saying things in the way that's interesting and um, likely to kind of grab and sustain attention yeah, it's interesting. We talked with Rory Sutherland, and and he was talking about uh, applying again, utilizing some experiments in the real world. And he's talking more business per- perspective. And he goes, the uh, business leaders could care less about if it's um, you, you know treatment A, treatment B, what those specifics are. They're just looking at the bottom line and at the end result, and and again the story that you tell about that. And I think that correlates exactly with what you're saying here. It's, you know, the, we have to understand who the audience is that we are trying to uh, influence. And, and that, that audience, 
uh, if it's academics, they're going to really care about the p-value and and all of the you know modifiers and various different moderators that are going on in this place. Uh, you know, policymakers, business leaders are there. They may have a, a passing interest in that, but I don't think that's going to be their key determinant of of is this a good is this a good study or or, or not and, and a good good application or not. Yeah. I often think of it as what's the thing you need to put in the one pager and what's the thing you need to put in the person's other hand so they can feel it's weighty and credible. Like that's the separation. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you you dream about a future where where behavior the behavioral lens is more evenly integrated into all these different disciplines, marketing, sales, HR, uh, UX, you know, CX, all those kinds of things. Uh, will there still be a need, do you think, for specific behavioral science research to be done? I mean, I have to say there'll still be a need, don't I? Because otherwise I'll, I'll be a pariah. But um, I, do, I do genuinely think there will still be a need, I think, in a number of ways. So I think one is you can only really mainstream stuff once it's tried and tested and proven because if you are putting a bunch of things out there that people don't even need to think about applying and they're not robust, then you're going to end up with uh, lots of rubbish um, interventions being designed because people aren't thinking about them. So, you know, you would want some sort of way of the things that get internalized being the things that are sort of cardinal rules that work well. Um, and so you want to be able to continue to generate new insights, to test the boundaries of existing ones. And I think, you know, one of the other things we say we're particularly excited about uh, in, in the future is the intersection of different methods and becoming more sophisticated on that front. So we've already got, you know, there's research coming out that looks at how can you use data science and machine learning and those sorts of things in a way that gives you more precise insights into, uh, you know, what works for who and how do you kind of, stop effects fading over time and how do you sort of target more effectively. There's also much, much better research coming out that bridges the gap between qualitative schools of evaluation and quant and all of those sorts of things and brings sociology and um, its methods into the mix. I think that's really, really exciting. And so I think there's definitely always going to be a place where there's the kind of academic crucible where you're throwing in lots of new things and heating them up together and seeing what happens in a much more experimental um, and novel way before you kind of feed the end product into the, um, into the mainstream. Yeah, I think as humans, we're such complex uh, social creatures, both neurologically as well as socially, that I, I think the well will not run dry on new insights um, anytime in, yeah. in, in any near future that I can foresee. What would you say to your 16-year-old self to prepare you for where, where you're at today? So I think I would say, I mean, if I was talking to my 16-year-old self, I'd just have to say, it's going to pan out. And I don't really know why, but it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be all right. Because my 16-year-old self was choosing what to do at university and picked to do English literature. Um, and then went and did that and then worked as a management consultant before getting into behavioral science. So that is not a path I would recommend to anyone because I don't think it's likely that you would end up in behavioral science at all if you did that. But here, here I am. Um, nowadays, if I was talking to a 16-year-old, I would just say, pick the things that make you curious and find a way to learn more about, more about those. Um, because I think the advice that a lot of people receive is pick the thing that's going to get you the best 
career or pick the thing that you're already good at in school and those aren't sort of recipes for motivation. Of course, that's a very privileged position to be able to say, pick the things that interest you and follow those. But given employability is pretty good out of lots of different degrees, there's not a lot in it. And if, if, the, if the deal breaker is whether you're interested in it or not, go with that. I, I think that's fantastic advice. And um, I think we can probably wrap it up with that. Elspeth, thank you. This has been thank really, give, given also, so for our listeners, we have had uh, technical issues, we've had scheduling issues. So it, it, this has been a long time coming. We have been wanting to have this conversation for a long time. And so finally, thank you. It is finally here. And we are so, so glad I'm so, that it happened. I'm so happy we made it work. I'm so happy we made it work. And your listeners should just know how patient and lovely and kind the two of you are because it's really been uh, a mess getting here and you've been nothing but, nothing but wonderful about it. Hey, Groovers. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Elspeth, have a free-flowing discussion, and talk about whatever else comes into our combi brains. Combi. 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 Yes. Combiosis. What? Hola. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, you, you, it's, it's early in the morning, Tim. Have you already started drinking? I'm, I'm just worried. Yes. No, uh, Combi. It was, it was really interesting for me because I've heard of it. I've, I've, it's been in the lexicon of different models, but it hasn't been one that I have really used a lot. Um, but we did this conversation with Elspeth um, about a month ago, and it's it's been much more prevalent in my thinking and, and how I'm looking at, at situations. And I attribute that to the great way that Elspeth talked about it. Absolutely. So maybe we should start with a little bit of describing it. We, we, we're not experts in uh, combi, uh, as, as, even as practitioners, uh, but we should just talk a little bit about what the model is. And so the point of the model is to separate out the barriers to behavior change. So it's kind of helping to find the problem the, of getting the behavior change enacted more so than what the solution is, right? It's right. Really- it's like, Removing the friction points and understanding where those friction points out and going back to a Roger Dooley kind of thing here. So Exactly. And so the letters C-O-M-B stand for some specific things, right? Right. So, so C, capability. All right. O, opportunity. M, motivation. And B stands for bullshit, right? No, behavior. <laughs> oh, 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 sorry. Sorry. I thought that was... Thought you did the first three and then you ended up with all this BS, which was yeah, B, oh, behavior, behavior. Sorry. Yeah. No. So uh, getting into capability, right? The idea about this is, right, do you have the physical capability and do you have the psychological capability in order to do whatever that behavior is? And that's a part of, of looking at this. Uh, do you have that resource there, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the O uh, is about uh, opportunity, right? Because there's physical and social opportunities that that you need to take a look at. Again, if you're thinking about frictions, what are the things that are preventing those behaviors? Is there is there a physical? Is there a barrier to physical opportunity or to social opportunities? Is it against some it's, kind of social norm? It's kind of the context, right? The context that you're going to be taking that behavior in when you think about that that opportunity, is it appropriate context for the behavior? And last is motivation, right? We have uh, this automatic 
inf- instinctual motivation and then a reflective motivation. There's intrinsic, extrinsic motivation that comes into this. There's all of these factors that influence. So all of those, uh, those three influence whether or not a behavior actually happens. So if you want to you know, go out and exercise. That's the behavior, the desired behavior. Do you have the physical and the psychological, you know, capability to do that, right? Do do my legs work? Do I, you know, if I want to go running, uh, uh, all of that physically, do I have enough energy? Do I have eaten all of those things that physically able to do it? Do I have the mental capacity to understand what I need to do there? The opportunity, do can I you know am I stuck in quarantine right can I not get outside to go run um or can I can right. I get out there and physically do it uh are there some social barriers like if people see me running is that gonna they're gonna look at me and and think I'm an idiot um you know like the the marathon joggers that used to started like in the 60s they were said that people looked at them really weird right and then do I have the motivation what what is the motivation for me to do that and is that motivation going to be enough to spur me to get up out of bed on a day and put my running shoes on and go out there so. right especially from that automatic that reflexive you know uh you know, versus reflexive part, you know, is it going to be like, Oh, I spring out of bed because I've got my running shoes and my, my running clothes right there at the edge of the bed, ready to put on, or am I going to have to think about it? Is it right. going to, not, not going to be so automatic and I can actually have to give it some consideration. So, right. And it's just a, it's a nice way, particularly it's a simple way of looking uh, if you're in an organization, if you're, if you're a leader in an organization and you're trying to understand why you're, your motive, you, you want people to do X, right? You want them to do this process or to go out and, you know, be more uh, customer focused, right? And the specific behaviors you're looking to do, well, this is a way of, of diagnosing, uh, right? You can look, are they capable of doing it? Do, do they have the training to go out and do that? Do they have the knowledge? Uh, is there physical uh, limitations on how that happens? Do they have the technology? That's part of that physical element of capability in order to be able to do that. Then is there the opportunity? What, when does that opportunity express itself? And how are, what's the context within that? And other the social norms that you have from an organization? Uh, what's the culture like within there that, that influence that? And then what, what's the motivation for them to do it? What are they, what are they going to get out of this? And how did that, that happen? So it's a way of diagno- diagnosing uh, some of this piece. And I thought it was really interesting. And that's how I've been looking at it in some of the work we've been doing with some of our customers. So It also uh, draws back to me how important uh, problem diagnosis is and how it's easy to jump to conclusions like, oh, we should just do this, especially, man, in the corporate world, it's just about get shit done, make it happen fast. So the you know the quickest we quickest way that we can get to sort of a simple, uh, reasonable uh, process or, or solution, then the better off we'll be. When yeah. really, Com B says, let's actually step back and define the problem really well, because from a well-defined problem, we're going to have much better chances of developing a really on-target solution. Yeah, and looking at the underlying root causes of the behavior, right? So, or, or restrictions from achieving that behavior. And that, uh, again, just in 
everyday life, but also from a corporate perspective, if we can apply some of those models, and it's and it's it's a nice easy model to to, to look at, you know, on what are what are some of the other ones that that the behavioral insight team came up with? It was East, which is easy, and you know, we know that one. But then Mind Space, right? Mind Space, yeah, fantastic. Both of them are great, but I love East. Easy, attractive, social, and timely. Man, that that just goes into every every presentation as as a, for for me in my practice to talk with clients about this is how we're going to go about implementing it. And yeah. Everybody gets it. It's a really a fantastic model that they developed. So yeah, and and again, you know, you use the model when it's appropriate. So these are these are different ways of looking at it. Yeah. So what else, Tim? What what else did we hear from Elspeth that we want to well, there was, groove on and dig into? Well, there was two two interesting themes. One uh, that that I as I listened to uh, Elspeth's words, there's sort of a futuristic thing and then there's some reflective stuff. And I, I, I wanted to talk about the things that she's thinking about for the future. We, we talked about what's next in government policy and she really emphasized application. You know, she okay. really emphasized application. And I, I, I really, really deeply admire this about her as a, a, a committed scientist and researcher that uh, it, it's not just about good data or a published paper or a model, or, I mean, she's really very focused on the applications and that bled into, into the, uh, the, the conversation we had about, um, about education because she's really passionate about education. Right. Um, and, and when she said, you know, what does school like look like going forward? And she doesn't have, you know, this is, this again is a, to me, um, the statement of a really good researcher is that she's, she doesn't have the conclusions. She doesn't have the answers. You know, she was just teeing up the questions like, man, we've been living in this centuries old model of education for some time. And, and what, what could we do to make the playing field better for those who have compared to those who have not, you know, I thought like, that's, that's a really, really interesting question that she asked. Um, Well, and, Particularly in an age, right, where we're in COVID and, and schools, at least in Minneapolis, right, we are starting the school year in a distance learning piece, very different than uh, how we started school last year. And it's an opportunity to re-examine some of those educational pieces, as as she mentioned. And this is the part that just gets me is we haven't changed the model, the 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 model of a school for over hundreds of a hundred plus years, right? 1860s, 70s is when that school model grades and moving up and you have it, you'd get the summers off to go work on the farm and everything else. So maybe there's, maybe there's new ways of looking. And by the way, that doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. <gasps> it doesn't mean that, that, there aren't good elements and solid reasons to be doing what we're doing. However, we're, we're living in a different world and it's not that the principles aren't important. It's the context that we're living in does give me cause to think that her question about the idea of what could we do to restructure a school year is really particularly relevant. And, and, you know, the, the last thing that she talked about in the future stuff was the future of behavioral science. <gasps> The years twenty one twenty one. What's that song? You you would know the song. What, what's that? 
Uh, yeah. I, gosh, I should know that off the top of my head. In the years 65, 65. Yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, what, what what's behavioral science going to be like in the future, Tim? Well, uh, we don't know, right? But <laughs> we don't know because it's the future. But Elspeth came back with two observations that I thought were just really, really cool. And they reminded me of our uh, recent conversation with Roy Baumeister uh, uh, in talking about the hedge fox. So, mm. so this is, this is uh, just take a moment here. First, Elspeth said um, that the first thing she thought would be that mainstreaming a behavioral science would be good. Like that behavioral science as a field of study is important. And that kind of reminded me of the hedgehog where we need to be able to have a field of study that's very singular and very focused and to know a lot about that one thing, which is sort of like what the hedgehog does. Right. But there's another aspect of this, which is really getting it mainstreaming so that behavioral science just becomes ubiquitous, right? So that it's integrated into the marketing teams. It's integrated into your UX teams. It's integrated into, uh, you know, the human resources departments within organizations. And so in that sense, it's almost like a fox because it is just across the broad uh genres of all of those um so uh, I, I like it we're heading towards the hedge fox ah, the hedge fox <laughs> yes. you'll have to you'll have to listen to our interview with roy baumeister to really understand what a hedge fox is so let's not let the cat out of the bag here or the hedge fox out of the bag Jim. <laughs> oh i love that this idea of wouldn't it be great to imagine a future where behavioral science is sort of invisible. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's a, a fabulous future. How about you, Kurt? What else? Well, but the other part of that is, is she talked about, and I think this was the, another part that you're going to talk about is this intersection of methods, right? This idea that uh, behavioral mm -hmm. science is going to get out of its own silo and from a research perspective, not from an applications perspective so much, but probably that as well. But, you know, integration with AI, integrate with uh, qualitative and quantitative work, integrating with sociology, with, uh, you know, various different other uh, programs and dynamics out there. And so really drawing on all of those pieces in order to inform this and again, it goes back to uh, the conversation we had with Tara Austin and and DeBono's thinking, lateral thinking, right? We're getting these different perspectives that are coming in uh, to play in that are going to help inform our behavioral science uh, work moving forward. This is part of the magic of the the foundational work in this field was the mashup between behavioral psychology and economic decision making. Oh yeah, right. I mean, yeah. you go back to that and, and then just in recent years, uh, bring integrating neuro, uh, neuroscience into, yeah. into the behavioral world has been pretty fantastic. So there is yeah. a, lot, there's a lot to go there. So one of the things that I just loved about this conversation and got me thinking deeper um, is, is just her you know, going back and talking about, you know, the message to her 16 year old self. And, and she mentioned something about how she goes, oh, God, I, you know, I, when looking back, I think how. Like I was, you know, so, so stupid or, you know, something along that line. And I think I, I, I might've misinterpreted it, but um, you know, for me, it resonated with this idea that, well, you don't even have to look back that long to think about your former self as not being 
nearly as intelligent or as uh, full of wisdom as we are at this moment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, I use this example, we talked about this before, is this concept of, hey, I do a lot of work around communications. And, and when we started this work 20 years ago, I thought, man, and, and the communications is nice because you have this record. You can see, like, we, we built these workshops, these PowerPoints for these workshops and these, you know, uh, promos and all this other stuff. And so we built these. And, and at the moment, they were so cutting edge and so freaking cool. And then you look back, like, even just two years, a year, and you look back and you go, ugh, that's crap. I mean, oh my God, look at the work we're doing now. This is so much better than this was. And then you go another two years and you look back at the stuff that you, you know, you know, four years ago, that was really crap. And then the stuff two years ago is just kind of crap and the stuff we're doing now. But you have that record of looking at that. And I think we do that quite often with ourselves. We look at, uh, you know, the way we were thinking about something, our attitudes, our beliefs, uh, all sorts of different things about who we are, the fears that we have. And we go, that was stupid. And yet, you know, and, and I'm so much smarter and I know so much more today than I knew. Uh, and yet, you know, two years down the road, we're going to be looking back at this time in, in our, our life. And we're going to be saying that same stuff about the way we're thinking and what we're doing right now. Yeah, the way that our best thinking ends up becoming just litter on the on the road that we're leaving behind us is can be a little sad because it certainly reinforces the what have you done for me lately or what new ideas do you have on the other hand it says that our world is changing pretty dramatically and i i, I see that as a good thing and that we need the fact that we need to keep reinvesting in new ideas is a good thing yeah. Well, and I, I don't want to be a, a total Debbie Downer because I do think there are times when we can look back and we go, God, that was we that was great. We did some really good stuff or I was showing up at my best in that moment. And, and as a musician, this is my musical question to you. Right. So when you look back at your older work, how, how does that compare for you to some of your newer work? And is there like one song or one album that you go, God, I was just hitting on all cylinders at this point, And this is the epitome. And I kind of, I don't want to follow that up with just talking about, you know, the one hit wonder bands or, you know, the, the bands that, that I love that had their great, their first album was awesome. And then just it went down after that. So. Yeah. I, it took me a long time to become a good songwriter. I wrote a lot of songs. I wrote hundreds of songs before I got to the point where I actually wrote some good songs. So it, it was a, a long trail of litter, but but that litter was really crap. It was really good. <laughs> so, uh, but when I got to the point where I, I started writing better songs, the bar raised internally to write more. And so I became more critical of everything else that wasn't a good song that I was writing. Mm. So, um, so anthems, which was my fifth record, is where I felt like I, I kind of struck a, a chord. No, no pun intended, but I, I, you know, I struck the gong, or you know, I, 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 I grabbed the the brass ring from a songwriting <laughs> perspective, at least. 
for half the time, you know, at least some of the songs are, are on that record. And uh, on the subsequent record, on, on, the, on the last record, Another Orion, there's a couple of really good tunes on that record as well, but not but not all. And, and now I feel like the songs I'm writing now, they have to be at, at that level. If I'm not writing at that level, like what's the damn point? You know? So, so loss aversion is not the epitome yeah. of, of your songwriting yeah. uh, prowess or, yeah, there you go. Well, and you ask about the, the one hit wonders there. Part of it is that the freshman record is much easier to produce than the sophomore record in part, because typically when, when, uh, a, a, when uh, someone releases their first record, they've been saving up writing a lot and, and, uh, and culling through all of their material to find the best tunes for the record. They have right. a lot of material to draw from and they've, they've zeroed in on absolute best. The second album is now it has to be new. It has to be fresh material. So they have a much smaller universe to work from. And so from a, you know, just, they have fewer ideas. There's just less in the hopper to choose from. And a lot of labels just drop people because they're like, well, you don't, you don't have a, 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 you know, enough good material and oftentimes didn't give uh, bands enough time and songwriters enough time to really continue to develop. Well, but I, I, I'm, I'm thinking too, like Violent Femmes, right? First album, freaking amazing, right? Uh, you think about the, the A, the, the like three relatively good alternative music hits from that, and, yeah. you know, songs that have, have stood the test of time. Yeah. And they have four or five subsequent records and they've been around forever. And I think they're still trying to put music out. And the rest of the music, I think, is just crap. <laughs> you know, and, and maybe that's my personal opinion. But but there's there. It's like they've degressed as uh, from their musical and song writing ability. Right. And, and so what, have they not. What What, what is it that is less than inspiring about their subsequent albums is it does it sound too much the same or is it too different yeah i think part of it is they don't have the catchy tunes they don't have the you know the the pieces that all just kind of flow together and i think there are some times where you catch magic right you catch magic in a bottle and and everything just the 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 inspiration was there for you the the music showed up or whatever and I, i'm not a musician so I'm, I'm just grasping at straws here but this concept uh, and of, and of the that. context that they were released in yeah or, or or when you heard it for the first time there might which be- is probably another big piece of it. it it has to fit within the context it's like you look at the rolling stones and you look at any of the, the albums they've released in the last i don't know 10 15 20 years and i don't know do you know could you name any of those songs from any of those not right off the top of my head, no. Yeah, but you could name, uh, you know, songs from the '60s and '70s. Absolutely. And, and and again, you go. Those guys had they had everything in their favor to continue to create really great music, and maybe it is, and maybe it's just that we're not hearing it, and maybe it's just because the the business of music has moved on. Um, but there are some of those artists who seem to stay up, you know, you two to a certain degree did a little bit better, I think, than, than others and trying to change up their sound and, and stay with the times and still be a little bit true to, to who they are. And, and they did a decent job of that. But I don't know. 
Um, about artists who have had top 10 hits in every decade that they've been producing music. James Taylor being one of them, Paul Simon being another, uh, David Bowie was, was one that had uh, a hit in every decade. Uh, yeah. Was alive. Uh, Michael Jackson. Yeah. Uh, as well. Uh, although with, you know, some with the Jackson five, some as a solo artist and, uh, Part of it is that they had the the bandwidth and the support of the label and their fans to continue to explore and do things. You know, I, I look back at you too and go, Octung Baby just, you know, that just never worked for me. But no. Tree in the same decade was was a magnificent record. You know, but you, you look at you look at too those those people that did that and and Granted, James Taylor, maybe not so much, but, you know, they they changed, right? I mean, you look at David Bowie and you look at his stuff from the 70s versus the stuff from the 80s versus the stuff in, that he did in the 90s. Yeah. And there's a distinct difference. And, and evolved production methods quite a bit. Well, James Taylor did too. I would, I would okay. Okay. I, I'm not that familiar with James, but th- so that's, yeah, it, it's interesting though, but they, they had to shift and change with the times. And I wonder, it'd be very interesting to, to sit there and to have a conversation with James Taylor and go, James, you know, is your new stuff, you know, how do you feel about that compared to your stuff from 1970s? Um, it'd be just I'll put that on my list for the next time I chat with him. There you go. All right. <laughs> All right. So with that, listeners, please, sorry, thanks for indulging us in our in our musical uh, diatribes here. But hang on for the bonus track. Hey, Groovers, this is Kurt with the bonus track for our episode with Elspeth Kirkman. Once we got past the scheduling and technical challenges to record our session with Elspeth, she was generous and thoughtful and offered some terrific wisdom that we were very happy to share. In that very short conversation, we covered a lot of ground, but we want to focus on these three things. First, we discussed how important models can be in helping us solve problems, and we focused in on how COMB model is getting good use at BIT. COMB focuses on three aspects of behavior change, and they are capability, opportunity, and motivation. There are links in the notes, and we recommend you check it out for your behavior change initiatives. Second, we talked about the keys to good application. Here, Elspeth was very focused on making applications relevant to real-world problems. She used words like context and pragmatism and actual impact, and it's always a good process to hear uh, and to think about researchers who use those words. Clearly, Elspeth is happy to move beyond p-values and standard deviations, and as practitioners, we were very, very happy to hear that. Lastly, we discussed the future of behavior science, and Elspeth laid out a couple of important themes here. On one hand, we need to keep studying behavior science so we can integrate the findings into the mainstream of business and government policy. And on the other hand, she imagines a future with more crossover of behavior science with fields like AI and how quantitative and qualitative tools might work better together. All of those things are exciting to think about. Okay, here's our groove idea for the week. We've got some links in the notes on how to learn more about Combi, and we'd like you to give it a try this week. Pick out one thing you'd like to improve in your work life. We do not recommend using behavior change models on your family. Just a note there, they may not like it. So pick up something that you'd like to improve in your work and see how you might be able to get a clear picture of your problem by analyzing it through a Combi model capability. Do you have the physical and uh, psychological capability, opportunity? Is the context right for this? And motivation, what's the motivation that you have for this? 
you might be able to understand the problem better and because of that, create a better solution. And please let us know what you come up with. We're excited to hear about your observations and ideas. And finally, as we continue to work through life in a pandemic, we hope you go out and have a good week.